TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. And the Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. The Reverend Broderick Greer is Associate Rector of Grace St. Luke's Episcopal Church and School in Midtown Memphis. In addition to his role with the church and school, he creates space for conversation at the intersection of history, popular culture, theology, and justice. He does this quite a bit on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Broderick Greer. His voice is strong and clear on these issues, and it's embedded in the Christian church. Sadly, this is unique in our culture, and it's quite extraordinary considering Broderick's relative youth. In light of the recent events in Charlottesville, the continuing struggle for justice in Memphis, and a troubling lack of leadership on these issues from so many of our leaders, we thought it would be insightful and useful to talk to Broderick about race and our modern culture, and specifically how that contributes to the dysfunction of our criminal justice system. So thanks for joining us, Broderick. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on The Permanent Record, which is, of course, a podcast about the criminal justice system. And, um, and you write and speak on race uh, rather clearly. And so I think, uh, you know, in light of the events of the past uh, few days and weeks in America, um, it's important to remind uh, people who do listen to The Permanent Record and people who care about criminal justice about just how important uh, race is and is still becoming, unfortunately, in this criminal justice system. So, um, first of all, you know, you're no, you're not bashful at all. I know this cause I follow you on Twitter about race. So tell me about your realization of race. You're a black man. Uh, and tell us, you know, how you came to understand that part of you. I was about four and went to a private Christian school. I was in, um, pre-K and there was a, and I already had this sense um, of my parents are very pro-black, very positive about our black identity in our family. And so I had already had kind of that education and formation from them. And then I was at school, and some of my classmates who were white were saying that I didn't have hair. <laughs> um, because, you know, I've always worn my hair short. And I remember thinking, I do have hair, it's just short. Um, and so kind of that, that visual and, you know, quote, physical difference, which actually race is a construct, it's not real, but um, we live in racialized categories, and I think I was hyper aware of that um, in preschool. And then I wrote about that in college for a column. I was writing a political column in college, and thought that this was a great story to share about, you know, diversity, inclusion. Where did, where did you go to college? I went to Freed Hardman University uh, in Henderson, Tennessee, a Church of Christ college. And there was a woman who read the column and accosted me in the cafeteria and started touching my head and said... Without, without asking? Without asking, without my consent, of course, and said, I know that you have hair. I know that you have hair. And she was deeply, deeply offended by the story that I shared from my life Mm. and basically 
you know, felt like, you know, I was accusing her of racism. Right. Um, this was someone I really didn't know. I mean, it was, it was a very uncomfortable situation. So, you know, that was a re-realization yeah. in college. Yeah, talk more about what you said just then about race not being a thing, but being a construct. What do you mean by that? Well, race is not biological. Um, it is not, I mean, it, it's a, a socially constructed category that probably, as we know it today, originated in the early 1400s, late 1300s. Um, Dr. Willie James Jennings writes in his book, um, Christianity, or um, The Christian Imagination, um, Theology and the Origins of Race, that the idea of black and white um, is a Western European idea that really started to take form around the time of the, quote, discovery of North and South America, um, mainly by the Portuguese. And so what they would do when they would um, go to these new lands, they started creating these racial categories as they encountered different people from different cultures. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, That is... uh that's exactly why I wanted you to come and talk to us. So, you know, you've, you've obviously studied this. You obviously have a, a, a deep understanding of, of race and, and where it came from and origins that I'm not aware of. Tell us your opinion or, or what you've learned in your research about how then uh, from that time that the Portuguese began to sort of create this social construct, mm-hmm. what, what the experience would have been like for someone like me who's, a, who's of, of Western European descent mm-hmm. and has fair skin and so what are the, over the course of those centuries since, uh, have been the major developments, I guess, in, in this social construct that we call race? So whiteness is both fixed and malleable, molten, mm-hmm. some might say. And so you have this sense that if you have been considered white, you will always be considered white. So you will, you know, every category of people, every ethnicity that's considered white will never not be white. But there are certain ethnicities that are now considered white that weren't before. And we're seeing that some in these, in these rallies that, that uh, you know, a hundred years ago, people of Italian descent, for, for instance, would not be welcome into these groups of, of young white men who are protesting now, correct? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Exactly. So Irish people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with religion as well. So you think about the Irish, they were Catholic. Mm-hmm. You think about Italians, they were Catholic. Uh, there was this sense that whiteness was equated with Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this ongoing discussion about um, the whiteness of Jewish people. Are they white? Or are they Jewish or are they both? Right. Um, and then you have an increasing number of people of, who are Latino who are beginning to identify as white as well. Hmm. Um, and that's going to be a large question kind of in our lifetime of, you know, who among Latinos are white who are not, who can be considered white. Um, so whiteness is both fixed and it is both, and it's multiple. So so flip it then and describe non-whiteness and and what Mm. are the key components of that. And I think that'll lead us into some conversations about criminal justice. I mean, it's, it's arbitrary in many ways. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's personal perception. So, you know, you can hear someone on the phone and think that they're white. You can look at someone's resume and think they're white, and then you meet them in person, and they're not. Um, and so whiteness is also aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more aesthetic than it is biological. Um, but just because it's aesthetic and not biological doesn't mean that it doesn't have real life implications for people who are not white. Um, So if you're not white, you're more likely to make a certain amount of money. You're more likely to live in an impoverished neighborhood. You're more likely to go to an underfunded school. And so it is a determining factor um, in, in what some would call a racialized caste system um, that your, your race more than anything determines your income level, your education level, um, your quality of life, how long you live is determined by this uh, socially manufactured category. Yeah. And for our purposes, how you're treated in the criminal justice system. And uh, of course, books like the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander make it pretty clear to me at least. And I think to any reader that race is a remarkably significant factor uh, when it comes to the criminal justice system. And so uh, that book, though, makes the case in its title that, the, that criminal justice is simply the latest iteration in a series of uh, racial oppression, mm-hmm. uh, especially in this country in the last 200 years. So um, it's a very compelling case uh, about what has happened and what, uh, what continues to happen. But talk to me about, you know, what, what of the future? Like, how do we deconstruct uh, a system that, it, it, you know, I would agree with her, is the latest iteration uh, of, of systems to be employed to oppress a, a non-white uh, people group. So, what, what do we? Be, how do we begin to unravel that when it is so so deeply entrenched in this country's history that we just move from system to system, uh, system to system that work very well to oppress? Exactly. I mean, I think there has to be this sense that. I mean, if you. If you grew up in the 90s or the 80s, you know, there was a show called Cops mm-hmm. on television. Mm-hmm. Very popular show, kind of um, the precursor to reality television. And if you were to base your understanding of race and criminal justice simply on cops, you would think that black people were genetically inclined to be criminal. Um, a better way to think about that is that our justice system is genetically inclined to be racist and white supremacist. And that was at a time, I mean, I was born in 1990, so I grew up with cops on television. This was at a time when black neighborhoods and communities were being disproportionately targeted during what was called the war on drugs, uh, which was really just a war on black people that was an evolution from the institution of enslavement a century before. And so what you have during that time is... And maybe let me pause and say that this is not Broderick's opinion. This is not Josh Spickler's opinion. This is not Jess City's opinion. These are... There are studies. There are numbers. There are... There is a body of evidence. And again, this new Jim Crow book explores that rather deeply. So I just... Crack, dis- crack uh, sentencing disparities, crack cocaine sentencing disparities exactly. is but one example of that. But the numbers don't lie. And that, whether you believe Michelle Alexander, where you, whether you hear Broderick Greer talking right now, the things that 
that happened during the 80s and 90s are real. And the disparities exactly. are, are quantifiable and, and really unassailable. So, And even in our own families, I mean, I have an uncle who served in prison for a long time because of a nonviolent you know, drug offense. Um, and this disproportionately affected black people um, for, I mean, it has to, up to this point for decades. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having this understanding, you know, what can, what can reverse the system? What can reverse the system is, is the decriminalization of marijuana, okay. number one, and then a retroactive pardoning and release of people who are serving prison sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and ensuring that there is a social safety net in place that will offer, you know, the economic empowerment that they need, the economic safety they need, and the job security that they need. Yeah. Um, and... That is a very good point about decriminalizing marijuana and drugs generally, and, and it's an argument that is really at the tip of most people's tongue when it comes exactly. to criminal justice reform. But there's also the reality that if we released every low-level drug offender in America right now, our prison system would still be by, and by far the largest in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk maybe a little bit about mercy because there's a, a growing body of, of scholarship and, and, and opinion that we're never really going to – reform this system we're never really going to see the gains and the reversal of the carnage that we've brought on people of color in particular until we talk about what it means uh, to have mercy and what a a criminal justice system is really intended to do and um, we have in my opinion and i think the numbers bear this out institutionalized oppression institutionalized fear and hate and um and segregation how do you do the opposite. How do you institutionalize mercy? In addition to being mm-hmm. a black man, you are importantly a man of the cloth. You are a minister, a trained person who has studied uh, scripture. And so what, what are your thoughts on institutionalizing the opposite of that, institutionalizing mercy? How do we do that? So one of the first things that comes out of Jesus's mouth in the gospel according to Luke, Luke 4, Jesus is standing in his local synagogue and he reads from the scroll of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah, and this text from Isaiah says, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the impoverished, the, the offering of sight to the blind, and the proclamation of the year of the Lord's liberation or the Lord's favor. And there is this sense throughout Jesus's ministry that he is coming to set people free who are captive to demons, who are captive to systems of oppression, who are captive to social constructs like gender, um, like this very natal sense of race. Um, One of the readings on Sunday coming up is the story of the Canaanite woman um, who approaches Jesus and asks her to heal her daughter and and asks him to heal her daughter and Jesus says, you know, I've only been called to the people of Israel. And this woman says, um, I need you to heal my daughter. And Jesus said, I'm not going to offer food to dogs. And she said, even dogs need to eat. And so in some way, Jesus is approaching this woman with his own set of cultural assumptions. And she changes his mind and he heals her daughter. 
And so, you know, I think there is a sense in which Jesus is being formed and informed and transformed by the people around him who are challenging him, who are demanding an access um, to a whole life, to joy, you know, to relationships being mended. Uh, If you're offering this to Israel, why are you not offering this to us as well? And so there is this sense in Jesus's ministry that, that the work, so he, you know, he is then himself um, a marginalized Jewish person living in occupied territory who is crucified by the Roman Empire. Um, theologian James Cohn has wrote, written a book about this called uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he brings in the parallels between the lynching tree as kind of the instrument and weapon of the American Empire and the cross as the instrument and weapon of the Roman Empire. And so you have this oppressed, you know, some would call person of color Jew at the margins of society who becomes a victim of Rome's criminal justice system. And so the work of the church in this time is, is seeing the way that the person that we worship that we adore and that we seek to follow Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth Mm -hmm. was himself a victim of the criminal justice system of his time. And how can we look at people who are in the criminal justice system, people who are marginalized, people who are oppressed and not see our Lord himself in them and not do everything within our power and within our ability to set them free as well. And, and I mean, we've seen state execution before. We've seen state, yeah. state sanctioned violence. We repeat the story yeah. every Holy Week, every year. Right. And how do we see that and not seek to be a spoke in the will of oppression in our own time? Yeah. And, and so much of that is radical, and yet... It's not radical. The no. thing you just said. There's not a radical bone in my body. Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not a crazy Mm-mm. thing. Um, and I think that is to cut through all of the politics and to cut through all of the preconceived ideas we have about each other. If you can do that just a little bit and listen to what you just said, it's not crazy. It's not um, the kind of thing that launches revolutions. I mean, it mm-hmm. is a, um, very simple anyway. I want to talk though more about your role in the church and um, and its leadership. Uh, and you wrote recently in Teen Vogue, I see myself less as a purveyor of pithy moral quips and more as a companion with people through life's most challenging and complex seasons. Despite that, you're really good on Twitter, which, I, <laughs> <laughs> which lends itself to pithy moral quips. But tell us how you're different in person uh, as a minister uh, than you are online. What, what's your favorite part of this job that, as you referenced, is hundreds of years old? is based on some very ancient ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's, what do we need to know about Broderick that we don't get in 140 characters? You know, I, I really don't think, I think that there is this, you know, kind of divide that people, you know, they'll meet me, number one, the first thing that people who have only known me through Twitter will say is that I'm a lot shorter in person than they thought. <laughs> You know, I don't discuss my height on Twitter, yeah, I, you know, and I don't understand, topic. understand why people would think that I'm tall. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, often very confusing. Um, Pardon me one moment. This is very funny because we had A.C. Wharton on a couple, a couple of episodes mm-hmm. ago, and he talked about this understanding he had as a very young child of these black lawyers from Nashville who were coming to his country town 
to represent a young black mm-hmm. man. And he talked about height and he talked about how they thought this lawyer was going to be eight feet tall. Oh, that's funny. And so it's the second time in a few episodes that height has come up in these conversations anyway. Yeah, and I, I think that, that that goes back to a lot of things. I think people um, often, you know, when you know someone through one medium, mm-hmm. you don't really understand kind of their range of voice. So, you know, my voice in the pulpit is not going to be my voice on Twitter, is not going to be my voice at the bedside of someone who's dying or at a funeral. Sure. Um, And so I think uh, what we're learning about clergy in the social media era that we've entered is people need to be a little less rigid about the range of voice that um, leaders of faith have been given in the past. You know, you people assume that because I'm a priest that, you know, there are topics that are off, you know, that I can't discuss or, or words that I can't say right. or things that I can't think. Um, and I think, you know, that, that I have, I had to realize that's people's baggage, not mine. Right. right. Um, and, you know, if you can't say it in church, then, I, you know, where can you say it? You know, if you can't discuss injustice and you can't discuss the state of the world in church, you know, this warm place that many people consider a second home, mm-hmm. then where can you discuss any of it? Yeah, absolutely. So have you ever um, gone into prisons, into jails and as a priest, as, mm. a, as a minister and helped? I have not. Yeah. I have not. No. What and you? You know, if I if I do say so myself, uh, are a minister at a, a fairly fairly affluent congregation mm-hmm. in Midtown Memphis. Um, how do you and and you know, so there aren't people in your parish who are frequently involved in the criminal justice yeah. system, and that's probably what lends what causes you to answer that question that way. Mm-hmm. So, how do you then? Um, and these are folks, uh, you know, in that congregation and in so many like it across Memphis who are responsible today. They're the mm-hmm. they're the, the uh, keepers of these systems that we're talking about. How do you get through to them? Mm. Uh, you know, obviously there are sermons and you've talked about your voice there, but uh, how do you minister to them in a way that helps them realize their uh, responsibility and their obligation to this community? You know, I, I like to brag on my parish because I think our people that we serve are deeply intelligent, thoughtful, and funny people. Mm-hmm. And you know, my approach as a pastor is never to force people to do anything. I'm not in the guilt business. I would have been ordained in a different denomination if that's what I wanted to be engaged in. Um, my primary responsibility as a priest and pastor to my people is to hopefully reflect the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ in such a way that people feel safe and they feel at home. And my sermons, Christian education, formation that I do, is never really meant to persuade anyone of anything. They can make, you know, I primarily pastor adults. They can make decisions on their own. Um, And I also, my approach to ministry and to serving our people is also not one of a cookie cutter either, Um, you know, based on income level, based on education level, based on 
prior experience and exposure um, and, and current context, people have to make those decisions for themselves, how they will be a conduit of justice and love and mercy in our world. I cannot determine that for them. I can walk with them as they discern that, but I can't tell them, you know, this, the, you know, X, Y, and Z, these are the things you need to do. Again, I would have been ordained a different denomination if I, if that was the business I was in, but I think our people are smart enough and discerning enough. Uh, and I give them enough credit to know that they will make the right decision when the time comes for them to make those decisions. And you've already confessed to us that you don't have a radical bone in your body. And you've, you've laid out a very, I think, compelling case about, um, faith in particular Christianity's role uh, in all of this. Whose job is it? Who who are the radicals? Who are mm. the people who need to be actively working to reverse um, the the damage, specifically to the criminal justice system, a system that is a product of an American government, a product of a Tennessee state government, a Shelby County, a Memphis city government? Who are those people, and who are the radicals, and how how should they be taking the the message that you've delivered here and deliver frequently to your to your parish uh, into this system. Mm. How, who are they and how should they be doing that? Well, I mean, it, ideally, it's the people who are already there. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. Brian Stevenson talks about proximity. So, exactly. I mean, who is closest to the issue and who knows the issue the best? Um, and how can they themselves be agents of transformation, you know, in their their given context. Um, you know, I think, I think that there are lots of people who are in office in, in different offices who shouldn't be there. Um, and who do not have the interest of people of color and specifically black people in mind when they're making decisions. Uh, some of them may, I mean, may, they do have, biases uh, that are based on race and based on white supremacy. Um, And so I think that it it, it really has to be people who are close to the situation, who know the situation and who can have the creativity to imagine a different situation, Um, who can imagine whole people's flourishing instead of, people being locked up and generations of people being lost um, in a system that is built for their detriment and destruction. Yeah. And they're just, you know, I don't want to be sound too depressed on this, but there just seems like a veil that, that is between um, the people that you're describing, the people proximate to the problem right now and that world where Mm -hmm. people can flourish, where people have dignity. So, you know, we're recording this within just days of the events of Charlottesville mm-hmm. um, in a time that there isn't, frankly, in, in my opinion, a whole lot of hope for, for seeing that in my lifetime, flourishing, mm-hmm. dignified responses to, to the social problems that we have. What do you what do you see? How do you see the great American experiment, democracy, capitalism, our society playing out for people of color? Uh, that's a tough question to answer, I think, today, but. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, how has it ever played out for us? I mean, capitalism exists at the cost of black lives um, and at the cost of the lives of indigenous people, people who were indigenous to this continent. Um, You know, you think specifically about 
enslavement and the way that, you know, the first pieces of capital in the United States and, for, you know, before that in the colonies, the first, the, the first capitals, capital were black people. Bodies. Um, yes, the bodies of black people. Um, yeah, we were understood as just bodies. We were understood as, you know, subhuman. Um, but there has been this strain of re- stream of resistance, of, um, of dignity. You know, I think about my parents. They are such dignified people. They are such confident people. My grandparents were very much the same. Um, my aunts and uncles, my cousin. I come from, from people who are very dignified, very proud of themselves. And I don't think there's ever been a sense throughout the history of black people on this continent when we have not been proud of ourselves, proud of where we came from, proud of our native tongue um, that, you know, sadly has been lost over time. Um, proud of the beauty of our bodies and of our experiences and of our unique contexts. Um, and I think that that pride, that power, that resilience um, is not necessarily what gives me hope, but lets me know that, you know, we were here before this country started and we'll be here after it's done. After this, you know, quote, great American experiment is over. Um, and we have, you know, all of this has happened on our backs. I mean, I think about Michelle Obama at the Democratic National Convention last year, literally just mentioning the fact that enslaved black people built the White House. And there were a bunch of, you know, slavery apologists, people who probably liked this idea of the HBO Confederate show, who took to Twitter and other mediums and said, you know, that's not true. I mean, I mean, it's, it's this kind of, it's, it's gaslighting. I mean, this, I mean, that's all that white supremacy is ever invested in is just lying to people about history and about who we are and about where we're going. I mean, she, I mean, that's all she said is black people built the white house who were enslaved and people said it wasn't true. And it is true. You know, you look at this house, you know, that Trump calls a dump, um, And you think, those were my ancestors who built that house. Um, My ancestors built this country. Um, Nameless, um, many times storyless. You know, white supremacists would think of them as storyless. Uh, But these were dignified people who had a sense of pride in themselves and a sense and a knowledge, an intimate knowledge that this isn't all there is that this can't be all there is, that, that we are not destined for destitution. Um, we are destined, even if it is only by our own will and demanding the rights ourselves um, for justice and for dignity and for a place of our own, a home of our own. That was Reverend Broderick Greer in conversation and on the permanent record. Broderick is Associate Rector of Grace St. Luke's Episcopal Church and School in Midtown Memphis. Follow him on Twitter at at Broderick Greer. My thanks to him for taking some time out to chat with us. 
You can also visit his website at broderickgreer.com for more of his writing, lectures, and some great videos. There is a whole lot of goodness on that site. As usual, thanks to Gil Worth and the OAM Network for providing support and distribution of The Permanent Record. They are the best podcast network in Memphis, and they have new digs and crosstown concourse. Come see them. Check them out online at theoamnetwork.com. As usual, special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for our theme music, She Got Gone. Remember his duo, Me and Leah, have a new record out. Look for it on SoundCloud and Spotify, and look for them to play live soon around near you. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Watch for our new website coming soon at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you will, give us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps people find our podcast. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.